You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. While Munich is about universalism, about taking care of the world and the lives of distant others, Vietnam is domestic in spirit. It is about taking care of one's own, following the 58,000 dead from that war. Vietnam counsels that tragedy is avoided by thinking tragically. It decries incessant fervor, for it suggests how wrong things can go. Indeed, it was an idealistic sense of mission that had embroiled the United States in that conflict in Southeast Asia in the first place. The nation had been at peace at the apex of its post-World War II prosperity, even as the Vietnamese communists, as ruthless and determined a group of people as the 20th century produced, had murdered more than 10,000 of their own citizens before the arrival of the first regular American troops. What war could be more just? Geography, distance, our own horrendous experience in the jungles in the Philippines in another irregular war six decades previously at the turn of the 20th century were the last things in people's minds when we entered Vietnam. Vietnam is an analogy that thrives following national trauma, for realism is not exciting. It is respected only after the seeming lack of it has made a situation demonstrably worse. Indeed, just look at Iraq, with almost 5,000 American dead and with over 30,000 seriously wounded and perhaps hundreds of thousands of Iraqis killed at a cost of over a trillion dollars. Even were Iraq to evolve into a semi-stable democracy and an implicit ally of the United States, the cost has been so excessive that, as others have noted, it is candidly difficult to see the ethical value in the achievement. Iraq undermined a key element in the mindset of some, that the projection of American power always had a moral result. But others understood that the untamed use of power by any state, even a freedom-loving democratic one like America, was not necessarily virtuous. Concomitant with a new respect for realism came renewed interest in the 17th century philosopher Thomas Hobbes, who extols the moral benefits of fear and sees violent anarchy as the chief threat to society. For Hobbes, fear of violent death is the cornerstone of enlightened self-interest. By establishing a state, men replace the fear of violent death, an all-encompassing mutual fear, with the fear that only those who break the law need face. Such concepts are difficult to grasp for the urban middle class, who have long since lost any contact with man's natural condition. But the horrific violence of a disintegrating Iraq which, unlike Rwanda in Bosnia in some respects, was not the result of a singularly organized death machine, but of the very breakdown of order, allowed many of us to imagine man's original state. Hobbes thus became the philosopher of this second cycle of the post-Cold War, just as Isaiah Berlin had been of the first. 
And so this is where the post-Cold War has brought us, to the recognition that the very totalitarianism that we fought against in the decades following World War II might, in quite a few circumstances, be preferable to a situation where nobody is in charge. There are things worse than communism, it turned out. And in Iraq, we brought them about ourselves. I say this as someone who supported regime change. Robert D. Kaplan has been a foreign correspondent for The Atlantic for more than a quarter century. He's the author of 14 books on foreign policy and travel, including Monsoon, Balkan Ghosts, and Warrior Politics. From 2009 to 2011, he served under Secretary of Defense Robert Gates as a member of the Defense Policy Board. His new book is The Revenge of Geography, What the Map Tells Us About Coming Conflicts and the Battle Against Fate. Thank you for joining me, Robert. It's a pleasure to be here, Rick. This is such an amazing book, and one of the things that I think you do that makes this book so powerful is that it's not just the concepts that are clear and put together in a way that is important and really timely. It's the fact that it's also a personal journey at the core of this, and by personal journey, I mean you like walking across the desert of Iraq and coming face to face with the revenge of geography. Uh, yes. It, it's a very personal journey for on a number of levels. On one level, I realized as a supporter of the Iraq war that whereas the United States military had vanquished geography in the Balkans in the 1990s, specifically with air power, in the decade following the United States military was revenged upon by geography in the deserts and mountains of Afghanistan and Iraq, where geography really got its revenge. And this all came home to me in March 2004. I found myself with 1-5, the 1st Battalion of the 5th Marines, a Marine battalion that was in northern Kuwait that was just about to start the overland journey to Fallujah in Iraq. The overland journey was several hundred kilometers. Nobody shot at us. It wasn't dangerous in that sense until we got into Fallujah itself. But moving an entire battalion of Marines across several hundred miles of desert entailed the most complex logistics. Humvees were breaking down due to dust. There was a driving rain. What was required were all sorts of mess halls for people to eat in, not just in northern Kuwait, but spaced out at road stops along the way, where there were also gas stations, mechanic shops to fix the vehicles, mountains upon mountains of fresh water and meals ready to eat, mountains of tool kits for each vehicle. The, the logistical tale was, was quite amazing. Just to move a, a, a battalion of Marines, meaning about 900 Marines, from, one, from the southern border of Iraq to the center of Iraq without having to fight anyone. You know, this book, uh, I think, thrives on asking lots of good questions. You prove in this book the power of the good question as much as you do by providing the answer. So I'd like you to talk about the, as a writer, here you are, you've gone undergone these incredible experiences as a foreign correspondent over 
decades and seen the results of so many different policies spewed out across the map around the world. Talk about coming up with the concept of this book, because the journey you make is not just that physical one, too. There's a philosophical journey in terms of looking at your influences as well. Yes. Throughout my decades as a foreign correspondent and decades spent reading the leading journals of opinion and the leading op-ed pages, both liberal and conservative, I was constantly inundated with questions about what we can do, what we can accomplish, how we should intervene, how we all had a responsibility before history, how there were no limits to what we could do if only we pursued the right policy or made the right change in the interest rate in this country. It was all about human beings surmounting fate. What this book is about, it's about the other side of the coin. It doesn't dispute any of that. But what I do in this book is show you the other half of reality, fate itself. Uh, the formidable physical impersonal forces that are obstacles to human beings to overcome, are uh, uh, obstacles in overcoming uh, these forces. And I, fe- and I felt that before you can overcome fate and physical forces, you have to have respect for it in the first place. You have to have a respect for physical forces. And in order to gain a respect for it, it has to be described minutely. So what this book is about is describing just what we're up against, just what are the constraints. That's a word you don't hear much in the discussion, constraints. What are the constraints upon us? This book is all about constraints. It's not fatalistic. It doesn't say we're doomed to suffer, we're doomed never to intervene, all that. It just says before you can, uh, you can make your mark on history, you better have a deep respect for what you're up against. And that was the real uh, intellectual impetus to writing this book. Uh, I thought that was one of the things I thought you did very well was that you have a very forceful thesis. You have literally the ground beneath our feet supporting you, the entire world, the physical shape of the world supporting you. But you kept a very nuanced perspective, and you regularly address the power of the individual, of you know, individual men, individual nations, individual regimes and, and powers within to, to counter the, the fate that, is, that most of us uh, ignore. So I'd like you to talk about yeah. keeping those nuances. You know, you, you hear the word geography, and you think of a musty one-room schoolhouse. You think of something, oh, geography's out of date. We conquered geography with electronic communications, with financial markets, with political science, with uh, liberal interventionism, all of this. And what I'm saying is, no, no, you haven't. And the more you can respect geography, the better chance you will have to overcome these things. So uh, what, what I try to do here is really to describe it, to describe everything that we're up against. And I'm con- it's, a, it's a book with a lot of tension in it because I'm always aware that I'm becoming what's called deterministic, which is fancy academic language for fatalistic. And so I'm always pulling back. I'm always saying geography has different stories to tell. It doesn't all go in the same direction. 
for instance, in my discussion of Syria and what, what's in the cards for Syria, I show two different geographies. One that would explain the country breaking apart into a Yugoslavia-type situation. Another, how the country might recover and succeed as becoming like a, 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 a bigger version of early 20th century Beirut, Alexandria, or Smyrna, meaning a whole bunch of different sects and ethnic groups united by commerce and sophistication and cosmopolitanism. So geography doesn't mean everything's going in the wrong direction. Uh, I'm trying to give people a new respect for geography and at the same time show, yes, technology has made big changes. It certainly has. Uh, a YouTube video could go around the world at virtually the speed of light, and you can have riots from North Africa to Indonesia. But if you look deeper at each of these countries, Tunisia, Libya, Yemen, Indonesia, you'll see that each place has its own story to tell, and the riots meant something different in the politics of each of those countries. And the politics of each of those countries are dependent on culture and ultimately on geography. Because what is culture? It's the experience of a, of a people on a specific terrain over hundreds or thousands of years that leads to very specific behavioral patterns. You talk about, too, and I think this is really interesting, that the world was united, essentially, in the 18th and the 19th centuries, but now it's united at a different speed of travel. Right, yes. Um, it, at Fort Leavenworth, at the Command and General Staff College in, in Kansas, at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, the U.S. Army's staff college, that is, they have a saying. It's attrition of the same adds up to big change. That if the same pressure keeps building up, it leads to different results over time depending upon the level of it. So starting in starting actually at the beginning of the 15th century when Columbus and Magellan sailed around the world. For the first time in history, the world was united and closed. The Europeans had been everywhere. They had crossed every ocean. But since then, we've had 500 years of being more and more united. And then in the 19th century, the European empires, the 18th and 19th century, pegged out every empty spot of land in Africa, Latin America, and parts of Asia. So that by the early 20th century, there was no room to breathe anymore that any war in Europe would become a world war because all of these places had colonies everywhere, everywhere else. And now we're in the 21st century where you have, you know how many cities there are in the world, Rick, with over a million population, 468. And how many cities have over 10 million? Well, we're close to 40. And that number is going to double soon. So the very finite size of the earth now is a force for instability. As we inhabit a, a more claustrophobic planet, united by media, but, it's, but that doesn't negate geography. It just makes it more precious and claustrophobic because now every place can interact with every other place. Financial markets matter, but so do the Hindu Kush mountains in Afghanistan. So does the D Judean desert in the West Bank, uh, which means that it's a desert, so there's very little water, so that's something else the Israelis and the Palestinians have to fight over. Uh, the mountains of Kashmir still matter because they're fought over by 
numerous ethnic groups. So that in order to, to get a grasp of how 193 countries are all interacting with each other, you've got to disaggregate it. And you have to pay attention to the mountains, the deserts, the promontories, the inlets to make sense of it all. Now, one of the the men you mentioned, I think, who's really at the the center uh, of developing this kind of thought uh, is uh, Mackinder. So talk about the importance of his book and also this this concept of the world island, which I thought right. was fascinating. Yeah. Uh, ha- Sir Halford J. Mackinder was a British geographer at the turn of the 20th century. And he's one of these people who wrote many books. His, his, his worldview is hard to summarize in one sentence, but like so many of us, we become categorized for one thing we did, and the rest of our lives are forgotten. Um, And Mackinder is categorized for one article he wrote, The Geographical Pivot of History, which was published in 1904 in London, in April 1904. All right, what was the world like in April 1904 in London? It was the Edwardian era in Great Britain. Europe was had been more or less at peace since the eighteen the eighteen fifteen the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Yes, there was the Franco-Prussian War of eighteen seventy seventy one. There was the Italian Risorgimento and the eighteen forty eight uprisings, but these were relatively small time affairs. Europe, thanks to Metternich and Castlereagh and others, had been at peace for almost a century. And so Europe was still living in the, in the afterglow of this post-Napoleonic peace. And here comes Mackinder. And Mackinder says, in the future, we're not going to have continental intra-European politics and wars. We're going to have world wars. And here's what's going to cause it. It's going to be caused by the fact that Europe has, over the centuries, been driven and defined by invasions from the East. And the next invasion from the East is going to come from Russia. And it's going to come from Russia because Russia's building railways all the way into Central Asia, trying to get to the warm waters of the Indian Ocean. And Russia's going to be countered by Germany, which is both a continental power and a maritime power, which is going to try to contest with Russia uh, what's going on here. And lo and behold, you have World War I. The end of World War I, Mackinder publishes another book called Democratic Ideals and Reality in 1919, when everyone says war's over, no more, there'll never be any more wars because millions of men died in World War I. It makes no sense to fight wars, so we won't have any. And Mackinder says, no, there'll be another German-Russian contest. And the only way to avoid it is to build a belt of independent buffer states from Estonia in the north to Bulgaria in the south that will be feisty, democratic, independent to forestall any growth of a new Germany, a new risen Germany or, or, or a threat from Russia. Mackinder's not listened to. Lo and behold, we have World War II. And Mackinder's the basic thesis about the, the competition between a great land power in the heart of Asia and sea power coming from Europe and North America would, of course, come to define the Cold War. Because what was the Cold War really about, except the way Mackinder defined it? And Mackinder had this concept of the world island. And the world island was Eurasia plus Africa with the Indian Ocean as the maritime organizing principle of them both. 
And the world island has several big satellites, such as North America, South America, Australia, and others. And he talks about how North America would be in competition with the world island in the future. And that gets us into how the United States had to dominate the Western Hemisphere so it could affect the balance of power in the Eastern Hemisphere, meaning the world island. Now, one of the things I think that is... uh so interesting about your book, and I mentioned this a bit earlier, was the, the number of questions you ask and the, the way you ask them. So I'd like you to just talk about formulating some of these questions and using that as a springboard for the kind of, for exploring the past. How, because this book is all about where we were, how we got to where we are, and looking at that journey and thinking, well, maybe that might have some influence over where we're going to go next. <laughs> yes. Um, so one of the questions I formulate going around the world, in Europe I say, well, if Europe was always defined by by uh, pressures from the East, because Europe, after all, is just the Western excrescence of the Eurasian supercontinent. So all the uh, influences on Europe, all the pressures upon Europe, would come from the East, and they would also come from the South. Because as I say in the book, the Mediterranean is not Europe's southern border. Europe's southern border is the Sahara Desert, because most of the people in Arab North Africa, lo and behold, don't live in the desert. They live along the coast in the Mediterranean, and they're part of the same world as the Italians and the Greeks and the Spanish and others. So, uh, so, so I ask, well, does this mean that even though the Warsaw Pact is deceased, that we're still going to face pressure from Russia from the east, and we're still going to face demographic pressure in Europe from Muslims in the south? And I answer in the affirmative. And I, <clears throat> let me just say that everyone's been defining the European crisis as a debt crisis. Every day there's an article in the Financial Times about fixing this interest rate or, rate, or floating this loan or something. That's not the way to define it. The way to define it is a geopolitical uh, crisis, because as the Euro European Union is weakened. Russia is flush with, with money and with natural gas revenues and is buying up infrastructure throughout former Eastern Europe and, and, and using all these means from crime groups to uh, buying banks and electricity grids to, to reestablishing a foothold in the former communist satellite states now that the European Union lacks the economic bandwidth to help because they're so caught up with their own problems. So that's the question I, I pose in Europe. In South Asia, I pose the question, how will India react to the American withdrawal in Afghanistan? And then I explain how Afghanistan is not just some distant place for Indians. It's part of their it's part of their world. It's part of their uh, sphere of conflict and competition because throughout the history, throughout the past, Afghanistan was governed by the same imperial dynasty as what governed Pakistan and the northern third of India. It was all part of the same imperial world. So Indians don't look upon Afghanistan as foreign terrain. In China, I pose the question, what if China becomes democratic or more liberal or just opens up? Does that mean there will be ethnic unrest all through the borderlands of China? Uh, 
does that mean that um, that China will not be able to pursue sea power as it is pursuing it now? And what if China holds together and moves on? Does that mean that the Russian Far East is going to be colonized by China? Does that mean that Central Asia is going to be colonized by China? That China will move even deeper into Southeast Asia now, given the weakening of the, of the state of Thailand? Talk about the idea of Europe. And also, I love what you're describing, how you're describing Russia's moving east. It's yet another eastward invasion of Europe. It's just an economic version of the of what they've done of the Mongol hordes. Yes, it's an economic version of what they did with Red Army troops during the Cold War mm-hmm. and, and during World War II. Europe and the United States are, ve- have, are very favored by geography. Uh, the reason the the democratic ideal of Europe could take hold and the reason why the United States are an exceptional people is basically because of geography, I argue in this book. Europe is in the northern temperate zone. It's, it's, it's blessed by the Gulf Stream. So it has a, an invigorating climate, yet it's not too cold. It's not like Greenland or Iceland, kiss of the Gulf Stream. It's open to the Atlantic shipping routes, but yet its ports are protected by the shattered coastline of the Low Countries. Uh, it has, uh, it's, it's chock full of, of harbors, peninsulas, all of which separate easily into different countries and yet which provide, uh, provide for commerce at the same time. The lust soil of northern Europe with its forest openings provided for the growth of cities, of very well-protected cities. Uh, you had rivers like the Elbe and the Danube, which allowed one part of Europe to communicate with another part of Europe. Uh, it's very similar to the United States. Uh, why is America a great country? Because America oper- uh, occupies the last resource-rich part of the temperate zone that was settled at the time of the European Enlightenment and is blessed with more mileage of inland waterways than the rest of the world combined, all running in a favorable direction that uh, encourage trade across the continent. Unlike Russia, for instance, which does have great rivers, but they run south-north, so rather than unite the country, they divide it. One of the things I think that's interesting about your book is the way you look at, at the Middle East. So I'd like you to talk about the Rimland yeah. and and how that works with the Heartland. And I think that that's such an interesting uh, uh, way of looking at this and putting it together in a way that makes sense. Uh, the Heartland was Halford Mackinder's thesis. The Heartland meaning the center of Eurasia, which would be united to the coast by railways. But the Rimland, or what is today, the Rimland was a concept developed by a Dutch-American geographer and geopolitician, Nicholas Spikeman, in the 1940s, who unfortunately died young. Uh, He was a professor at Yale, and he wrote in the early part of World War II before the tide turned in favor of the Allies. And yet, even then, he predicted while we're fighting Japan, Japan will ultimately be our ally against China. Uh, you know, he just wrote these things that nobody knew what he was talking about at the time he wrote them, but they all became true afterwards. And Spikeman's concept of the Rimland was that belt of states south of the heartland, but with frontage on the Indian 
Indian Ocean and the Western Pacific. So that it was those states that mattered the most. And what was he told? And he said those states would be the battleground in the decades to come. All right, what was he talking about? He was talking about Turkey, about Iraq, about Iran, about Pakistan, about Afghanistan, about Vietnam. Uh, and so on. You get the point. He knew what he was talking about. Because it, it's not an accident that all these places became battlegrounds during the Cold War and in the post-Cold War. One of the things I really liked, and you describe civilizations as growing up out of a specific terrain, and out of that terrain they thrive, and then they move on and have contact with other civilizations, and then they change in ways that are somewhat unpredictable, so that you have this great vision of the influence back and forth of human labor and human civilization and the geography that both gives it birth and gives it the opportunity to change. Yes, that you're describing the views of William Hardy McNeil, who is a great historian in the middle part of the 20th century at the University of Chicago, who wrote a book uh, called the, the Rise of the West. And it was really a history of the world in 800 pages. And you just summarized his thesis that world history is driven by civilizational interactions. Um, now, you may say, well, that's the opposite of what the late Harvard professor Sam Huntington wrote with his Clash of Civilizations. In fact, McNeil gave Huntington's book a good review in the New York Review of Books because he understood the subtlety of what Huntington was saying and how it kind of interacted with his own theory. But uh, McNeil is saying that world history is a history of migrations. It's about people moving over the map from one place to the other. And in those countries where invasion was difficult because of geographical, because of topographical reasons, like Egypt, Nile Valley protected by desert on either side, protected from the invasion from the Mediterranean because of the Nile Delta. Yes, Egypt was invaded, but so few times that they, you know, that there are exceptions to the rule. Egypt could develop as a cohesive age-old cluster of civilization. So even now with its democratic revolution and its instability, it's still a real state with a structure. Uh, with institutions that function with bureaucracies, an army, a police force, etc. There's an idea of Egypt. Yeah, there's an idea of Egypt. Egypt means something. Everything from pharaonic runes to, to Nasser, it's, it's, it's sort of a, you know, a demographic, uh, universal demographic joint in the heartland of the Middle East. But then you have a place like Iraq where there's no idea of Iraq, because Iraq stands athwart invasion routes rather than protected from them. Uh, you have, throughout history, you had invasions coming from both the east and the west across to Iraq. So Iraq going back into deep antiquity was always divided between peoples who occupied the Kurdish mountains to the north, central Mesopotamia, and southern Mesopotamia, which is reified in our present era 
by the Sunnis in the central Mesopotamia, the Shiites in the south, and the Kurds, of course, in the mountains in the north. So Iraq is a very weak state, and because it was always weak, it could only be held together by the most brutal and austere totalitarian means. So Saddam Hussein was sort of geography's revenge on Iraq. And so were the dictators who preceded him. The dictatorships in Egypt under both uh, Mubarak, Nasser, Sadat were not nearly as brutal and oppressive as that of Iraq, again, for geographical reasons. You talked uh, a bit earlier about the crisis of room that we're facing. And and I think one thing that's interesting that you describe is how cities grow and then become victims of their own growth. And you say that radical Islam is the story of urbanization. And that's a really interesting perception. Yes. Uh, The idea that cities grow, become civilized and rich, and then break apart into into different elements. That's actually an idea that originated, I believe, in the 13th century with the Tunisian-born geographer Ibn Khaldun. And Ibn Khaldun said uh, the Bedouin were essentially enemies of civilization that civilization meant urbanization, influx into into crowded terrain, into urban areas, which then became rich. And because they became rich, they had to be protected. And that protection and that cluster of riches is what constitutes civilization. But once they became overly protected and overly rich, they split apart. Um, you, you know, because one city could not be ruled from the same central point of control because it got too big, got too big. All right, so what do we have today? We have a world of megacities, uh, a world where over 50% of humanity lives in an urban setting. And that 50% is, in many cases in the developing world, Um, living in cities that are badly run with bad garbage collection, bad electric lighting, you know, weak police forces, uh, unsafe in many respects. So over the past six or seven decades, as Arabs and Persians migrated from the countryside into the cities, they left rural life behind. And in the village, in the small village, Islam was part of the daily movement of the sun of the time as, you know, it was expressed through daily rituals. And it didn't have to be conscious in a sense. It was more natural. But in the crowded city, where suddenly a family was faced with life among strangers— and the male children face the, you know, the, the risk of falling into crime and youth gangs. In order to keep the family structure together, Islam had to be reinvented in a more austere and ideological form in order to keep society whole. And the result was that it succeeded. Uh, the crime rate in all these great Islamic megacities is quite small. In fact, it's almost infinitesimal. All these places are much safer than the average American city. But it had a side effect. That was the creation of radical Islam, which came originally from the increasing austerity and ideological severity of the religion, which, which, which happened because of urbanization. 
you know, as I read this book, on one hand, I was thinking that this is, you know, and I do believe that this is an essential work for somebody who's trying to understand the politics and the world today. But I also think that the readership of this book, the audience for this book is much, much bigger because I think this is a great book for understanding how our world or how any world is built. And by that, I mean, when you read, say, for example, a Jane Austen book, Jane Austen does much more than tell a great story. She builds that whole world for you. We haven't lived in that world. That's completely foreign to us. That's like outer space to me. And what you do is give us all the keys in this book for how to build a world, the psychology, the geography, the politics, the interrelations. So I'd like you to talk about putting that together. And that's kind of like just a side effect of what you are doing in terms of talking about this. I'm talking in this book, I'm talking about geography in the 19th century sense of the word. And in the 19th century sense of the word, before we even had political science, before anyone knew what that meant. I mean, it doesn't mean anything political. It's an oxymoron, isn't yeah. it? Um, well, it, 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 it infers that there is a science to politics. And science is ultimately based on forecasting. Can you forecast something accurately? Uh, Can you use political science to say where there'll be a coup and where there won't be? Well, to a a certain degree you can because you can narrow down options, but ultimately it's not a science. Now, geography in the 19th century sense of the word meant not just mountains and rivers and plains. It meant populations, demography. It meant culture. And if it meant culture, it also meant history. Uh, And it also meant natural resources, like who has the oil and natural gas? Who, you know, where are all the new shale gas finds being discovered? And how is that going to affect world politics? And essentially what this book ultimately is about, it's not about climate change or soils. It's about geopolitics. And what is geopolitics? Geopolitics is the battle for space among nations. It's about the jockeying for position, the balance of power, defining a country by where it stands on the map. You talked a little bit about uh, the importance of forecasting, and I think that you do a bit of that in this book. And I'd like you to just talk about working from the past to present the future uh, of, for example, um, Europe. Talk about where you see Europe going and how you develop those kind of those ideas in this book. Because you, uh, one of the things I think you did that was brilliant. I'd never heard this put this way before. You talk about the long European war from 1914 to 1989. Yes, because world the interregnum between the two world wars will look increasingly as the decades and centuries march on is increasingly insignificant. That 1914 is when a great cataclysm started and nothing was resolved at the end of it. So it restarted in in the 1930s. And then while peace came to the West in 1945, half of Europe from, from Poland south to Bulgaria, including Romania, Czechoslovakia, the eastern part of 
East Germany and so on, World War II continued because the Red Army that occupied or liberated those countries uh, from Nazi occupation did not retreat. It stayed there. And because it stayed there, these countries lived under the, under the oppression of communism until 1989. So it was only when the Berlin Wall fell, when Ceausescu was executed in December of the same year, uh, where it, or in November of that year when the Bulgarian communist regime collapsed and so on, that World War II finally came to an end in those countries. Um, so that we can talk of a long European war that ended with the, with the collapse of Stalin's occupation finally in 1989. But now what we're seeing is because the Russians have the natural gas that Central Europe and Eastern Europe desperately need and that the Russians have the money while the European Union is in terrible financial straits, that Russia is in a very soft, subtle sense trying to reoccupy Eastern Europe. At the same time, the revolutions um, along the North African coast will eventually bring North Africa back into European history so that Europe becomes both more Islamic, more intertwined with Russia, um, and Germany reemerges as a great power. Uh, NATO was designed, and NATO and the EU were designed to keep the Germans down and the Russians out. It's turned out to have been able to do neither. Talk about, you, you talk about the importance of Greece in the book. I'd yes. like you to talk about the importance of Greece. Yes. Greece is in the southeastern extremity of Europe where the Balkans meet the Mediterranean world. It's no accident that Greece is the most troubled entity in the European Union and yet is at the southeastern extremity. Because it's at the southeastern extremity, it has been a child of Byzantine and Turkish despotism over the histories, over the centuries. So it's, it, it's, it's, it's been the product of, of extreme underdevelopment compared to the part of Europe that had been occupied by the wealthier and more liberal Habsburg Austrian Empire and the Prussian Empire of Germany in the north. So Greece had very weak institutions, very weak bureaucracies, uh, poor agriculture because it was very mountainous, and because it had poor institutions, its political parties were really coffeehouse chieftaincies, so, uh, you know, centered around one charismatic individual. And so because Greece developed so much later than the rest of Europe, when you had a single currency form in 2002, suddenly you see you have this extremely ambitious European project that we're going to put all these countries, whether they have, uh, whether they have very um, backward development patterns because they were part of the Ottoman Turkish Empire or very well-developed development patterns because they were part of the Hanseatic lead and Prussia. We're going to put them all under the same currency. And that's a very ambitious project. And it didn't work. It hasn't worked. That it's, it's benefited northern, wealthier, Hanseatic, Prussian, Charlemagne's Europe. But it hasn't benefited the part of Europe, meaning the Balkans, uh, and the Mediterranean, which had a different history, a much poorer history. Now, remember, at the end of World War II, 
Greece was fought over between Churchill and Stalin. It wasn't clear that Greece would become part of the West in a political sense. Uh, Greece had a civil war at the end of World War II between rightists and communists. And had the communists won, Greece would have become part of the Warsaw Pact. That didn't ultimately happen. But if you were to speculate what what the Cold War period would have been like with Greece inside the Warsaw Pact, you'd have to think of how that would have threatened Israel and and the moderate Arab states to the east and south, how it would have threatened Italy to the west. But it didn't happen. But nevertheless, the the direction in which Greece goes now is a register for the health of the European project. Uh, Were Greece to leave the Eurozone, were Russia to establish greater influence in Greece, which would be altogether natural because they're both Eastern Orthodox societies, and Athens is as close to Moscow as it is to Brussels, uh, you would have a different Europe. You would have Russia with a real foothold in Europe. So Greece is still very crucial and, and symbolic. Let's talk about China. There's currently a dispute between China and Japan, and seems to me that for a long time, I've always thought that our primary worry in in America should be China. Yeah. China has two geographical facts, as I outlined it in this book. One is China is greater than it seems on the map because China has 100 million people in Manchuria, and just over the border in the Russian Far East, there's only 7 million people, but it's chock full of resources with timber and diamonds and gold, which the Chinese want. And it was taken away from them by the Russians. Right, exactly. It was taken away from them in the 19th century during a period of relative Chinese weakness, and China's determined to get it back. So Chinese corporations have their eyes on the Russian Far East, etc. Then you have Mongolia, Outer Mongolia, which is an independent country now, but was part of China's Qing dynasty during the period of the High Qing at the turn of the 19th century. Uh, China, again, is building roads there. It's buying up, it's buying up agricultural terrain. Uh, it's doing everything it can to colonize Outer Mongolia. China is building uh, oil and natural gas pipelines throughout former Soviet Central Asia. It's playing a policy of divide and rule with the countries of Southeast Asia. So China China is expanding as we speak. At the same time, China is very, very vulnerable because all of the ethnic Han Chinese live in the center of the country or along the Pacific coast, rimming them inside the inside China's borders in the high plateaus and tableland are the ethnic Inner Mongolians, the ethnic Turkic Uyghur Muslims, and the ethnic Tibetans, all of whom have serious problems with China. And, and, and where these minorities live is where the water resources for China are. It's where 80% of the coal for China is located, as well as other natural resources. And what China, China's leaders fear is that were China to open up and become a more open, liberal society, it would ignite ethnic separatist tendencies within China. Because it wouldn't just be the Han Chinese um, uh, you know, uh, protesting for more freedoms. It would be ethnic groups protesting for more recognition. You write, too, in this book that when you crossed 
the border, the Mexican border. You thought that the difference was more striking to you than the Berlin Wall. And I thought, boy, now here's a man <laughs> who who knows because we have a situation in Mexico where there have been more casualties, I think, uh, more in a in a drug war than in the entire Iraq war. It's stunning. Yes. Uh, Let me go over the casualty numbers. First, let me say the United States is a blessed island. It's got the Atlantic and the Pacific on each side. To the north is non-threatening Canadian Arctic, where 33 million people, which is only about a tenth of the U.S. population, and all of whom are middle class, live in Canada, I mean. And they all live close to the U.S. border. The, what really challenges the future of the United States is Mexico to the south because it's an artificial border. Uh, it's been embroiled in drug wars, which have taken 50,000 lives since 2006. Now, let me do a comparison. All, all the deaths in Syria up to this point are 20,000. Uh, the number of Americans killed in Iraq was 5,000. The number seriously ro- wounded was about 32,000, and yet you have 50,000 drug-related deaths alone. I mean, um, violence-related deaths alone, and not just in Mexico, but just in the northern third of Mexico, close to the U.S. border. So Mexico is a country that's economy is, is, is growing impressively. It's going to be one of the 15 largest economies in the world, and yet the northern third of it is being geographically occupied by criminal drug cartels. And even though the rate of violence has gone down in recent weeks and months, that's only because the cartels are consolidating their control. So the kind of country Mexico becomes will go a long way to defining the kind of country America becomes, because Latin history is moving north. While the average age of an American is 37, The average age of a Mexican is 25, and the average age of a Honduran is 20, of a Guatemalan 20, so that south of our border are much, much younger societies that are growing at a much faster clip than ours. And and they they will simply migrate north for the jobs. Uh, And and we will, um, what we're seeing is the demographic reconquest of the part of the United States that became part of the United States as a result of the Mexican War in 1846. It strikes me it's almost analogous in a way to the way Russia is is uh, in a subtly conquering uh, Europe again. Uh, Mexico is subtly reconquering America. In a... yeah, yes. Now keep in mind one thing I don't go into in the book because this this only became really apparent in the last year. And, you know, with books, they're completed a year before they're published, but certainly good for an afterward, is shale gas discoveries, which are very geographically relevant to what you just asked. Turns out most of the shale gas that's just recently been discovered around the world is, guess where? In the United States. And guess where in the United States? Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma. And if the United States becomes a major shale gas exporter, uh, in about eight or ten years, we're going to be able to compete with the Russians. 
in Europe for selling energy. And that's so that Vladimir Putin, Russia's leader, is now trying to reconquer Eastern Europe, but he knows he's got to do it within a decade because by that time, he's going to have real competition for selling his energy, uh, and it's going to come from the United States. I'd like you to, to finish up and just talk a little bit about as a writer and, and as a man who spent years in the political arena, looking at the past and talking about the future, it's always really hazardous to talk about the future. You talked about um, some of these people who made predictions and then like two weeks later, something happened that made their prediction look completely wrong. But ultimately, this proved to be the long term correct. As a writer, you must personally feel some trepidation. Yeah. Yes, because first of all, you cannot predict the future. What you can write about are constraints and limitations that give one a, and, and the record of the past that gives one a sense, a vague sense of where things are going. The goal is not to predict the future, but to be a bit less surprised by the future. And that's all you can do. Uh, let me give you an example where this where this procedure at worked. Um, one of the articles I'm most proud of, I've gotten a lot of things wrong and I'm not proud of, but this article I was proud of. It was published in 1992 in February, in the, in the February issue of The Atlantic in 1992, and it was called Syria, colon, an identity crisis. And the thesis of the article was Syria at the time is the most anti-Israel major Arab state. It calls itself the throbbing heart of Arabism. It's where, it's where anti-Israeli sentiment is, is, is risen up to an art form almost by the government. And I'm saying this is all for a reason. Syria needs a strong pan-Arab identity precisely because underneath the, the carapace of authoritarian rule, there's nothing but warring sects uh, and ethnic groups, and that Syria is not really a country. It's, it's a place, it's a vague geographical expression of Alawites in the northwest, of Kurds in the north, of Sunnis in the central corridor. And the only way to hold this volatile mix together is to appeal to pan-Arab sentiment. And that if the past is any guide, this cannot go on forever. At some point, the contradictions within Syrian society will come to the surface. And then we'll see that, um, oh, and then I say that Hafez al-Assad was like Leonid Brezhnev. He, you know, he, he put, uh, he cobbled, he put the, the future off. He kept postponing the future, but never built a civil society in the interim. So I was using the past. I was using geography to kind of lay out a possible future for Syria that was not altogether positive. You know, one of the things I think that this book really does superbly well is it, it shows us how the world we live in today was built. All the different pieces and the importance of things that are, you know, when you live in a house uh, for years and years and years, you, you forget about the walls. You forget about the foundation. <laughs> and yeah. you, you think about the TV and the books. <laughs> right. That's exactly, you know, that's a very good analogy, Rick. It's like I'm writing about the septic system underneath. I'm writing about the electrical system inside the walls. I'm writing about everything that you don't see. 
but which basically makes the house run. And that's what geography is, everything you don't see. Uh, the Iranian leaders couldn't give a wit about geography, yet geography is what allows them to do what they do, which is to carve out an empire of sorts from the Mediterranean uh, to the Indus River Valley, from, from Lebanon to western Afghanistan, because the Iranian state is synonymous with the Iranian plateau, which so it's a natural geographic heartland. It's, Iran is not an artificial state. There's nothing artificial about it. It's not a vague geographical expression like Syria or Libya or Yemen. And so because it is a strong state, because of geography, it has real institutions and bureaucracies, which the Ayatollah can take advantage of. And democracy as well, as you point out. In the past, in the Iranian, well, you don't have democracy in the Iranian past, but what you have is a rich, eclectic, voluptuous civilization as experienced by the Medes, the Parthians, the Achaemenids, the Sassanids, and others, and uh, which this current Iranian empire does great violence to. I've been speaking with Robert D. Kaplan. His new book is The Revenge of Geography. Thank you for joining me, Robert. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.